Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word that is just so rich and powerful and wonderful and meaningful, Lord. May we take it in this morning. May we allow it not just to to go in one ear and out the other or just kind of reflect upon it for a moment, but may we take it to heart, Lord. May you open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us today, your glory and your wonder and your beauty and your salvation. Lord, may you teach us, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, today we start a new series. In fact, uh, I forgot to tell Doug to tell, take down the banner, but we went through the story. So it's fun to remember that we went through 31 chapters of the story, that we made it from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And now we have gone, done an overview of the Bible, and we're going to hit some really wonderful books in the Bible over the next year. We're going to talk about Colossians today, or through the next few weeks, and then starting in the fall, we're going to do a whole series on the Gospel of Matthew, and it's going to be wonderful as we take a look at all uh, these different things. But I want us to understand a little bit about the book of Colossians. Oh, i got to turn it on, huh? That will help. A little bit about the church in Colossae, as Paul was writing to them, some things that we need to understand. First of all, we understand that the church was under attack from false teachers, denigrating the deity of Jesus Christ, meaning that they were teaching that Jesus was not actually God. The deity of Jesus means that he was God in the flesh, and they were teaching that he was not actually God. And so this teaching was going out, and of course you could imagine that since this was all so new at the time, you know, in the first century there, it was confusing when you had many different teachings going on. And so Paul wanted to make sure that he gave them um, some really important information as he talked about the nature of Jesus being the creator and the redeemer. And so he, he wanted to make sure that they had a clear understanding of who Jesus was. It was critical to him that this church know God in his greatness and his glory, rather than the deficient view that they were getting from these false teachers. And so what's the big idea here in the book of Colossians? Well, Paul describes Jesus in the loftiest of language. It's probably the loftiest of all the New Testament, as he raises Christ in terminology that is just so wonderful. He talks about Christ's preeminence and his sufficiency, meaning that Christ is the center of the universe. He is the creator and the recipient of creation. As Colossians says, he is the one who, who created it, and it was created for him, by him, and through him. He is the center of the universe, the creator and the recipient of the creation. He is preeminent over all things. This philosophy, this thought is very important as we go through this book. Also, Jesus is sovereign. He is above all things, and he's authority over all things. And all things are reconciled to himself. Again, this is an important aspect to understand as we get into the book of Colossians, that Jesus, as God, is sovereign, sovereign over all things. He's the authority of all things, and in Christ we're told that all things have been reconciled. He has made things right in his death and resurrection. This proper view of Christ serves as the antidote for the Colossian heresy and for the building block of Christian life and doctrine, both then and now. 
And so Paul starts off in his letter in Colossians 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, what's interesting about the letters in the New Testament, you know, when you write a letter, you write a letter, right, dear whoever, right, and you write the letter, da, 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 and then you say, sincerely, or blessings, or whatever, you give your little ending, right? Chris, I write my name at the end of the letter, right? But Paul always put his name at the beginning of the letter. This is because he wanted to make sure that people knew who it was from, that this letter was had validity because it was coming from Paul. But not just Paul, not just a, 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 any old person, but Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. See what he's doing there? He's not just a man, he is an apostle. He gives his name and then he gives his title to show that this letter has authority for them not only to read, but to take to heart. Although he did not walk with Jesus as an apostle like the other apostles did, like the other disciples did, he had a very significant encounter with Jesus, right? We read about it in Acts chapter 9. And when you look at Acts chapter 9, if you remember back to when we went through the book of Acts, remember that Paul was not living the life that God had created him to live. And so he encounters Jesus, and Jesus says, you're not doing it right, Paul. <laughs> you got it wrong. You're going on the wrong path, on the wrong journey, I need, I need to set you on that straight path, on that right path for your life. And so God sent Paul on the right path to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. How many of us need that pointing in the right direction, right? You're not going in the right direction. Go in this direction. You're going that. No, don't go that way. We need that encounter with Jesus. We need Jesus to say, go this way. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into this letter. See, God says, when you go the wrong way, you are not living that bigger purpose that I have for your life. I have a purpose. I have a meaning for you. I have significant things for you to do. Follow my way, and you will do these great and wonderful things that I have created for you. Well, he continues, as he says, by the will of God. Paul has made an apostle of Christ by the will of God. He didn't just one day wake up and say, you know, I think I'm going to be an apostle. No. He received a call from Jesus that said, you are going to be an apostle of mine. By the will of God, I have set you apart for this doing. Evelyn says, I, I didn't know what, to, what it meant to be a pastor's wife, but God had that for you. That was the calling that he had at that moment in that time in your life. And God prepared you and enabled you to do that, that he that which he called you to do. And so in Acts chapter 9, we also see that he was told to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles and to the people of Israel. That was the will of God for his life. And he was given special authority to do this by Jesus. It is in this God-given authority that Paul writes the church in Colossae. We know Paul to be one of the greatest missionaries ever, right? I mean, in his missions, he would go, and he would go into a city, and he would, he would lead people to Christ, and then he would start a church, and he would set up leaders, and then he would go to the next place, and then later he would hear what was going on, and there were some problems, right? And so then he'd, he'd write a letter, and he'd send it to the church to say, ah, I heard that you're doing this, or you're not doing this, and he would correct them and instruct them and give them guidance through his letters. One thing we need to understand, though, is that this 
letter to the Colossians is not a church of Paul's. He did not start the church in Colossae. But he heard of the problems that were going on, and he understood them to be so significant that he chose to write a letter to them to help straighten out the problems and the heresy and the issues that were going through the church. He wanted to make sure that they had sound theology. They had the foundation of understanding of who Jesus Christ was. Last week when we talked about the book of Revelation, remember we talked about how important the church is. Now God has set up the church to do an important work. It is established by the will of God. It is to proclaim the gospel and to keep sound biblical teaching and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. And if the church does not fulfill its role, then, the, then Jesus will remove that church. Because the church is that important. And so even though he's in prison, he is writing this letter to this church. Well, he continues in verse 2, and read the yellow part with me, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. What a way to start it, right? They don't know Paul that well. They know of Paul. They know he's a, uh, an apostle. They know he has authority. And so he says, to God's holy people. Oh, wow, we're holy. How, how nice, you know? He reminds them that they are holy. Another version says, the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. All who are in Christ are holy because Christ makes us holy. Christ imparts his righteousness to us and makes us holy. We're only holy when we are in Christ. So they are holy people of God because they are in Christ. And thus, when we are holy, we need to be faithful and strive to live as holy people. It is in Christ that we find our identity. It is Christ that we are made a church because Christ is the head of the church. It happens that this particular church resides in Colossae, one of the many churches that are in Christ. There's an understanding in his writing that Paul expects the believers here to be holy and faithful. And in being holy and faithful, to be a strong witness for Christ to those in their city, which is a calling for us too, right? We are called to be holy and faithful so that we present a wonderful example in our community of who Christ is. Right? People have all these views of who Jesus is, right? We need to be holy and faithful and set that right example for them so that they can understand who Jesus really is, what it really does mean to be a follower of Christ. And he continues more. Again, read the yellow with me. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Now, one of the most important things, one of the highest standings that we can have as a people of God is to pray for one another. You may not know how to pray for a particular person, but you can pray for them because of their faith. You can pray that their faith would stay strong. You would say, pray that they would stay faithful. Maybe you're here on Sunday morning and you hear a prayer request for someone, right? And you say, I am going to pray for that person throughout the week. And you make a commitment to pray for that person. Or maybe God just puts on your heart someone, puts on your mind someone's name, and you think, oh, God, okay, I need to pray for that person. Maybe you know they're going through a trial or a challenge. Or maybe you just pray that the love of God will be shown through their life. 
whatever it is, one of the most important things that we can do is to pray for others. Now, one thing that we do some, but we probably need to do more, is we need to talk about the results of our prayer, right? Because prayer is powerful, and God works through our prayers, but oftentimes we don't hear what happens. So if we're praying for healing for someone, and they're healed, shouldn't we lift that up and say, look, this person was healed, we're praying for them, and now they're healed. We need to, to lift that up. If we're praying for someone to find Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, and they do, shouldn't we announce that so we know that we've been praying for that person and they have accepted Jesus? See, we not only need to pray for people, but we also need to, to share how are those prayers being answered by God. Paul is praying here for the people because of their faith in Christ and their love for God's people. They are making it evident through their lives, that they are Christ followers by the way they live, showing their faith, and by the way they love. How wonderful it is when we can make evident through our lives that we are Christ followers. By the way we live our life, by the way we love others, someone looks at us and just knows you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower because of how you live your life. Can that be said of you? Paul also reminds us of the truth of God, which is found in his word the Bible, and it is at the heart of the truth of God being in our lives that allows us to produce fruit for the kingdom of God and for bringing growth for God's people. We might shy away from sharing God's word with others, but when we do, we keep the power of God's word to be at work in people's lives. And so Paul challenges us. He, again, read the yellow parts with me. He says, The faith and love that spring from the hope stored for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Sharing your faith is really easy, truthfully. Really, all it is is sharing about how God has touched your life, how God has changed and transformed you, how God has created you to be a better person, the person you were created to be, and share that with others. We heard Grace give her testimony last month. We just heard Evelyn give her testimony this morning. Simply just telling people, what has God done for you and what does God mean to you? How is God impacting your life? But not only do this, another way you can share uh, Jesus with people is maybe you're reading the Bible, right? And you're reading a passage, you're reading a verse, and you're in a conversation with someone, and you just share with them what you learned. You know, that actually does two things. First of all, it blesses them, because now they get to hear the word. But it blesses you, because it causes you to remember a little bit more about what you learned and what you're supposed to be doing that day, right? It reminds you, oh yes, this is the verse that Jesus gave me. This is the verse is supposed to be active in my life this day. As they believe it and they take it heart, we believe, we see them sharing it with others and the word of God spreads and spreads and spreads just like we did with the fire here. I mentioned before about how about 10 years ago I made a challenge to myself to, to memorize a psalm a month. So for 10 years I've been doing this, memorizing a psalm a month. And it's really wonderful to have the Word of God constantly flowing in your head. There is so much of the Word of God in my head. It's just so wonderful. Throughout the day, I, 
I'm saying these verses and just really reflecting on it. I remember not too long ago, I was having coffee with a friend, and she was talking, and God brought to mind Psalm 12 to, to my mind, and so I just recited it to her. It's not a very long psalm, but I recited Psalm 12 to her, and two things happened. Number one, she was blessed by that, as God gave me those words to share with her. But secondly, I could feel the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through me as speaking these words. It's really an amazing experience that God was giving me the reminder of these words that were in my head to share with her. And it blessed her, and it blessed me. It's really that simple, just taking what you read, what you learn, and sharing that with someone else. Unfortunately, people don't allow the Bible uh, in, into their lives as much as they should. Barna, a while back, did a survey, and you're going to see five categories here that, that total up to 100% of the people interviewed. He discovered that 5% of adults interact with the Bible frequently. Okay, so they read the Bible frequently. But maybe it doesn't really impact them greatly, but they interact with it frequently. They, they read it fairly often. 19% interact with the Bible frequently, and they allow it to transform their relationship with God. So not only do they read the Bible, but it transforms their relationship with God. It deepens that relationship with God. 19% interact with the Bible, and they let it shape their choices. So it actually impacts the way they make choices, the way they make decisions. Maybe even a little deeper, so it gets a little deeper. But then we take a step back. Only 9% only read the Bible sporadically, and it has little influence in their life. So even if they read the Bible, it doesn't really have influence in their life. It doesn't really change how they live. And 48% read it infrequently, and it has minimal impact on their life. So almost 60% of people really don't allow, or even if you include the upper 5%, you may, 60, 65% of people don't allow the Bible really to impact their life, impact the way they live, impact the way they make choices, decisions. It doesn't really transform their life. This is unfortunate because it is by the power of the gospel working in us, the power of the God's word working in us, that allows us to bear fruit in every good work. And so if the Bible is not impacting our lives, then we're not going to bear that fruit that God has for us to bear. See, we need to evaluate where we stand. Do we interact with the Bible frequently? Even more, do we allow it to transform our lives when we encounter it? Do we let it shape our relationships and, cho and choices? Do we let God, through his word, influence our lives? See, it should influence how we think and how we feel and how we decide things, how we believe about things, right? We live in a world that is dealing with some really challenging issues, right? Immigration and abortion and the legality of drugs, and, and politics, and voting, and all these issues are in our world. We are being encountering these things on a daily basis, and there's all these views that are going out there. And if we don't allow the Word of God to shape our lives, if we don't allow it to be foundational in transforming our thinking, and our choices, and our decisions, then we will allow the world to sway our thinking, and we will not be biblical people. It is that important. On top of this, Paul encourages the Colossians in regards to his grace. It is an understanding God's grace that we are not only led to faith 
in Christ and led to salvation, but we are also led to grow deeper in our Christian walk, deeper in our faith, deeper in our love for God. The grace of God is the truth that God does not hold our sin against us, but he offers us a way out. And as we accept this grace, we're given the ability through Christ to live apart from sin and follow God's truth so we might be able to do great things for God. And so then we come to our last section. We'll read again, 9 to 14, and read the yellow part with me. Paul says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may be, have great endurance and patience, and giving joyfully thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul talks about the knowledge and the will, having knowledge of the will of God. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, every day we have choices to make, right? We have to figure out what are we going to do? What is important in my life? How should I set, what priorities should I set for my life? Wouldn't it be nice to have the will of God to help you make those decisions, to help you know what is good and right and what you should be doing in your life? Paul talks about how he prays for the Colossians that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will. If this is true, then, God's will doesn't come from outside of us, but from within, from God's Spirit giving us this knowledge and understanding. To bear good fruit in every good work, we need to know God's will for our lives. To know God's will for our lives, then it means we need to seek out the Spirit of God, and we need to let the, the Spirit of God speak to us, and we need to listen to what the Spirit is saying to us. This might happen by just having a feeling. God might give you a feeling. What is the right thing to do? And you know, according to the Bible, that, that that's the right thing to do. Or God may put a thought in your mind of something that is right or something that you need to do. And again, the Bible will support what that thought is to make sure that it's not my thoughts, but it's God's thoughts. It's, it's supported by the Bible. Or it might happen just by having a sense that God is leading me to do this. Have you ever had that happen? You just know that this is the right way I'm supposed to go. This is the right thing I'm supposed to do. I'm just supposed to help this person out. I just have that strong sense that God has led me to this person and that God has brought that person into my life so that I can bless them. And so all the time, God's Spirit is at work in our minds and in our emotions and in our feelings. And God is leading us and guiding us to know His will and to live out his will. And when we follow this, then we begin to experience the power of God at work in us. And we begin to bear fruit in our every good work because we are walking in the will of God and God always blesses us when we are in his will. All the more, Paul says that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. There's a story of a pastor who showed up one day to do the sermon, holding this birdcage. It was a beat-up old birdcage. 
And he began to tell the story of how he's walking down the street one day and he saw this young boy who had this birdcage with a couple of birds in it. And so he thought he would interact with the boy a little bit. And so he said, how are you? It's nice that you have these birds, you know. What are you going to do with these birds? And he was astounded when the boy said, oh, I'm going to have fun with them. I'm going to take them home and I'm going to get them to fight each other. And then when they're done fighting, I'm going to feed them to my cats. He was appalled at this, right? And the pastor's like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have asked that question. But then he thought, maybe it's good that I did stop. Because then he said, well, how much do you want for those birds? Can I buy them from you? The boy said, oh, you don't want these birds. They're ugly and they don't sing and they don't do anything. You know, you don't want them. And again, the pastor said, no, I think I do want them. How much do you want for the birds? And the boy thought for a minute, you know, like, well, how much can I get for this? And so he said, $10. And $10 was far more than the birds were worth. But the pastor said, okay. He gave him the $10. The boy went off and the, the pastor took the cage and he opened the door and he let the birds fly away. He freed the birds from their absolute death. And then the pastor looked at the congregation and he said, I have another story to tell you. It's a story of, of Satan after he was done in the Garden of Eden. And he came back and he had a conversation with Jesus. And he was gloating about how he, was, he got Adam and Eve to fall for his trickery, his deception. How he got Adam and Eve to, to eat of the fruits. And how he brought sin into the world. How they couldn't resist the temptation that Satan brought to them. And Jesus said, oh, well now you have him... Caught in sin, what are you going to do with them? He said, oh, I'm going to teach them how to divorce when they get married. I'm going to teach them how to fight with each other. I'm going to teach them how to, to make guns and build bombs and kill each other. I'm going to have fun, he said. And Jesus said, oh, well, how much do you want for them? And Satan said, oh, you don't want them. They'll just curse at you and spit at you and kill you. You don't want them. And Jesus said again, how much do you want for them? And he said, I want all your blood and tears and your life. And Jesus said, done. And paid the price for our sin. Read with me. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption. This is how we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into God's light, brought into God's love, brought into God's presence, God, brought into God's work so that we can bear fruit in every good work that we do. It's a marvelous first section of Colossians, and it sets up for us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that we would allow these words not only to bless us this day, but that we would keep hold of them throughout the week and that we remember that in God's will and in God's love, we can show people who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christ follower and we can indeed bear fruit in every good work. Let us pray.